What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Aguirre. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different, complete guy, which is the guy who walked the walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... No, no, that's actually funny. That's, and it's funny. I'll tell you why. I'm gonna, that's a good one, Matt. No, I'll tell you why. <laughs> Welcome to Death Row Diaries. I'm Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nogueira. And today we're going to finish part two of our discussion of Justin Helzer, the insane cult leader. The conclusion of this story is interesting, to say the least. But first, we have a quick question from a listener, Claire, in... England. We appreciate our listeners across the pond. And she just asks, uh, how does your family visit you on death row? Well, it really depends on what part of death row you're on. If you're a grade A inmate, which is the guys that go to the normal yard and uh, you don't have any disciplinary issues pending, well, you really go to a regular visiting room. And there's two parts to that because at first we used to go into a huge room that looked sort of like a cafeteria. You could buy food, sit down with your family and eat. It was full contact visiting, which was very nice. Uh, however, because we're at the place that we're at, we have the people that we have here. Um, these two guys and two gang members that saw each other attacked each other with knives out there. And I happened to be out there that day. And both guys were stabbing each other. So after that date, they canceled visiting for about a year and they built these cages. So now when you come see somebody on death row, of course, when the COVID protocols are not in place, you, you walk in cuffed up into this small booth. It's about maybe 10 feet by five feet. They uncuff you and you are in a contact visit with your family member or family members and it's a very small area where other inmates are not exposed to you and you're not exposed to them so therefore you can't attack another inmate I mean just so you know there is an unwritten rule in prison that you never ever do anything in that visiting room that will jeopardize your family other people's families or ruin visiting these two morons ignored that and that's what happened so that's one part. The other part is if you're grade B, you know, you've had disciplinary problems, you have, you know, fights, whatever, and you're in the adjustment center or the grade B status, you get visits that behind glass. So it's a telephone visit. You can see the person, but you can't touch the person. And then as the last part, there are video visits. Now, because of COVID protocols, you can sign up at uh, Visit Me cdcr.org or something like that and you basically 
can have a Zoom visit with that inmate on death row, and it's an hour visit. I hope that answers the question. So these two idiots just ruined it for everyone. You know, I mean, how about instead of you having to be in this cage, uh, how about the rule is these two guys have to be in a cage as opposed to everyone? That would be my suggestion. Yeah, and I agree, but, you know, the, the department sees things as, wow, you know, it was the best kept secret in the world. These guys on death row actually get contact visits. Oh, no, you know, at one point they were thinking about canceling complete, completely, but, of course, that would have made huge problems in here because if you don't have anything to look forward to, what's to stop you from completely turning into a monster? Um, so, yeah, um, it was a bad idea from the get-go with these guys attacking each other. And uh, all of us suffered for it. Um, as I said, I was out there that day with my family. Uh, at the time, I was there with my wife and my and my child uh, and my goddaughter. And when that happened, and uh, my son was a very very small child, and you know they sprayed pepper spray into the visitor room. It, it, it was just really bad. Uh, he couldn't breathe very well. Just, just not a good situation. And. Uh, yeah, I had a big problem with that, especially with the guys that were involved. Yeah, that's a terrible scene that a kid would have to witness that. I wonder if anyone beat those guys up, or maybe because they're in a gang, it, nothing happened to them. Uh, let's just say no comment on that particular issue right there. <laughs> <laughs> We appreciate everyone following us on Instagram and Facebook at Death Row Diaries. Keep your questions coming. Tell a friend about the show. That really, you know, helps get the word out, and, and that's kind of how these things grow. And give us a review on Apple Podcasts. All right. So last time we were talking about Justin Helzer and him and his brother so he was kind of his brother's lackey his brother had this magnetic kind of personality justin helzer kind of the introverted uh you know creepy doctor kind of vibe to him and he went through a few women that he was more or less using he had a job maybe as a stockbroker, maybe working in the mailroom, but regardless, he encountered some well-to-do people who him and uh, his brother and this troubled woman named Don Goodman, who they recruited, killed them, and, you know, they got some money out of that situation, and from from there, it was kind of uh, a loose cannon situation where they had to kill a bunch more people, and I think there were drugs involved, and of course this is all part of some elaborate plot to start a, a cult, like uh, a cult with very unhinged beliefs, and it didn't work out, and of course Justin Helzer who's the subject of our story today, ends up on death row. Did I get all that right? Yeah, pretty much. You know, they killed five people to farm what they had envisioned with this 
this cult called the Children of Thunder, which would hasten Christ's arrival on Earth again. It was just some quacky stuff, religious mumbo-jumbo that they were that they were, you know, hoping to uh, to bring to Earth, and it's just it, it's just a lot of nonsense. But five people lost their life because of it. Um, and they ended up on death row where I met both of them. Now, uh, the subject of this story right here really is Justin Helzer and what happened to him while he was on death row and how he departed this world. Um, a brief overview of why we're talking about this is because I wrote a book called Penitentiary of Horror. Um, the subtitle is True Paranormal Stories of America's Most Haunted Prison and the Evil Stalking the Men on Death Row. And Justin is one of the stories in the book. Now, why the, re the reason I wrote the book is because of all the rumors going on on death row for the past 35 years that I've been here about, you know, sudden coldness, uh, ghosts, and all these strange happenings. So I started researching what this is all about and I discovered that there's three cemeteries here on in the prison and where death row sits is actually a burial ground for a bunch of Miwok warriors who died against Mexican troops it's a really elaborate situation where their their leader who was a Miwok shaman and warrior named Canteen well the prison's actually named after him they mispronounced it, misspelt it, and the Spanish added San, as San Quentin, because they thought he was a saint. He was actually a Miwok shaman. And there are rumors and there's writings about this guy that he came back to this small peninsula before the prison was ever built and performed this ritual to set his warriors you know, away in a, 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 a Miwok fashion. Well... Rumor has it that he actually opened a portal and bad things came through. And this is where the prison's at now. And these stories come from these particular happenings uh, dealing with the paranormal. Let me call back. Yeah, so I know you're shopping that book around, uh, or you finished it, but we think it should be <clears throat> published soon. And some of the stories we've covered in our earliest episodes and Justin Helzer goes to prison to death row. And this guy, I don't, I don't know if he has an arrogant demeanor, but certainly anyone who thinks they are like the living God or whatever. I don't know if we want to get too into the weeds with the religious theory, but it's, like every cult, I think the basic premise is that the leader is God, right? So does that go over well in prison? Because that is, um, you know, that's a that's a pretty arrogant thing to be claiming. Well, yeah, he didn't claim, well, there's Justin and Glenn. Glenn is the older brother. He's the one who claimed to be like a prophet. He was the, that he said that spirit spoke to him, and I guess spirit is God. So he was kind of like a, a medium through God spoke, which, yeah, in terms of prison, guys don't give a damn about that stuff. They just thought he was a freaking clown. 
I mean, really, there's a few guys that would talk to him about that stuff, but for the most part, he didn't pose any threat to anybody. He wasn't pushing a racial agenda. He wasn't uh, a gang member. He wasn't a child molester or a rapist. So they, they really didn't pay much attention to him. And that's really the truth of the matter. It's just his brother was a different story. He was very passive, kind of a lackey. He was his brother's gopher. Hey, go for coffee, go for this. Um, so, yeah, they got along. They got along because no one paid much attention to them. And I said before, they, these guys weren't rapists or child molesters. They were just big, goofy guys that no one really cared about. Um, but as I was researching for my book, um, I ran across different people that I interviewed. I actually interviewed over 100 people, both inmates and guards and convicts about these stories and what they had witnessed. One of the stories is the Justin Helzer story. It's entitled Windows to the Soul, and you'll figure out why that is the title to the piece. So, you know, I got the story from a guy on the road. I changed his name to Crowley because, I, look, I, I talk about myself and the guys involved that died without a problem. The guys that are here, I don't use their name because I always cover my sources or at least protect them because, well, it's just what I do. So I interviewed this guy in the yard and he told me the story of what happened to Justin. His life was kind of a permanent meltdown, or at least it had been for quite a long time. But does he, I don't know, become even more crazy when he gets to prison? Yeah, I'm not too sure of the crazies it were, but he was looking for something. He was looking for himself. Like a lot of guys that get into religion, they're, they're, they're searching for something. Well, this guy, Justin, begins to, and this is nothing new. Remember, his brother came up with the, the 12 uh, so-called principles of magic, and they were already into the occult and all this stuff. So Justin basically picks up where he left off, where, where he left off while he was out, and he starts researching in the library here that has a lot of books of occult and everything else, and he begins to you know, really research and study. And... You know, he's having these, these physical problems. His back is bothering him. He's a very tall guy, so he's kind of hunched over. The medical staff here is not giving him a lot of help. And he begins to, you know, study magic and, and these principles that he's reading about. And suddenly he, he starts coming to Yard talking about that these entities have chosen him and that um, they've healed him, that he's fasting and meditating and through him um, you know they're working their magic or their healing abilities so as proof he stands straight up and he touches his toes which he's never been able to do because his back is bothering him so much Um, so no one's really believing this stuff because I mean a lot of guys talk about a lot of religious stuff that they are touched by God and in prison a lot of guys get very obsessed with religion but this guy really soon after begins a whole you know he's a different guy he's a lot more serious before he was running like a little puppy and now he's moved from his normal tier where he was out to the first tier because he's proclaiming that he needs to tap into these lines uh, to enhance his ability to receive these benefits from these people. I know that sounds nuts, but this is what he's saying. And 
he moves to cell 46 on the first tier, and Crowley, who he's telling these things to, is an old guy. He's, he's you know, in his 80s, and soon after that, he moves next door to him as well. Uh, not because of religious anything, just because he couldn't climb the stairs anymore. And one night, while he's watching television, he begins to hear these chants, chanting at night. And he asks Justin, is that you? And he says, no, that's not me. And this continues on for several weeks. And then one night, Crowley's sitting there, and suddenly it gets very cold. He can see his breath. He smells sulfur in the air. He comes to the bars, and he can hear a woman giggling. So he merely sticks out his mirror to look. This is what convicts do. We stick our mirror out so we can see one way to tear. We reverse the mirror, and we can look down the other side of the tear so we can see who's on the tear. When he does this, he sees nobody. But he persistently hears the woman's voice. And specifically, he hears her tell whoever she's talking to, the door's open. I'm not going anywhere until I get what I want. So he's confused. He doesn't know where this is coming from. He doesn't know who's saying it. And, and it's, it's scary to him. He, he, there's something wrong. Something feels awkward. Like a lot of times you're on death row. As I said, this is a burial ground. And there are three cemeteries here. It often doesn't feel right. So suddenly the the coldness leaves. The smell is gone. And he kind of just shrugs and goes about his business. But it doesn't leave his mind. The following day he goes outside, hoping to see Justin, to talk to him about it. He thinks it's Justin or something to do with him, but he doesn't show up. So what does he do? What everybody does when he encounters something they can't explain. They rationalize it. And during this process, he realizes, huh, the person could have been on the second tier just above me. The woman could have been talking to another convict. That's the explanation. And he kind of convinces himself of that. And, well, nothing happens. He's like, okay, no big deal. So, you know, this is something that is talked about on death row. Strange occurrences. People see things. There are a lot of ghost stories here. I said a lot of guys have died here. So Crowley's just curious about what's going on, and he hears chanting at night. Every night, continual chanting. But now it's more disturbing. He hears what he feels is Justin crying at night. And he's kind of mumbling and pleading for it to stop. Please stop. This is unnecessary. Please don't do this. And he knows it's his voice. He understands it's Justin talking. But, you know, he thinks maybe he's talking to his TV. He's watching a horror movie. He's watching something. A lot of guys in prison talk to their TVs. And that sounds crazy, but they yell at their TV. They, if, if Tom Brady has a touchdown pass, they're yelling at the TV for him to do it like he can hear them. This is an often occurrence on the row. Well, he feels something again. It's very wrong. He smells the sulfur. He, he, the cold is near. His TV's going nuts. He does not attribute it to anything supernatural or paranormal, but he wants to know what's fine. He wants to know what is going on. 
So finally, he goes outside and Justin shows up. And as soon as he gets close to him, he realizes he doesn't look right. His eyes are sunken in. He doesn't look like he's been sleeping in a very long time. And he reeks. He hasn't been in the shower. The body odor coming off of him is so bad that Crowley has to cover his mouth and his nose because it's that horrible. And he asks him, what's going on? And Justin just begins to cry silently. And he says, hey, what's wrong? What's going on with you? And he says, hey, I messed up. I messed up. The entities that were supposed to heal me basically fooled me. I've opened the door and she's come through. So Crowley's like, wait, wait, what are you talking about? She's come through. And he says, look, I'm referring to her as a her loosely. It takes the form of a woman, but it's, it's, it's torturing me. It's, it's taking things from me. It, it's molesting me. Meaning it's almost like having sex with him. And it's, this guy's crying. I mean, he's literally crying. So Crowley doesn't know what to think, what to say. It, it seems like a joke. Maybe someone's playing a joke on this guy, but he's looking at him. He doesn't look right. Um, so it, it just there's something wrong. Can you imagine this? I mean, I'm sitting here listening to him tell me this story, and I'm looking at him, and this old man is scared. You know what I mean, Matt? I mean, this guy is scared. And I normally, when I'm interviewing people with this book, when they start opening up about these paranormal, the guys, the one thing that's obvious to me, anybody could lie to you, but you can't fake fear. These guys were scared to tell me these stories. Yeah, and I'm sure he's probably not scared too easily just because of the environment that he's found himself in. Is uh, So is Helzer's... He's like mentally anguished and and dealing with something. Is Is it almost like his physical deterioration is kind of tied to that, like he's he's just kind of withering away. Yeah, it looks like it. Yeah, they um, he, he tells me that, that he is not only scared, but his body is taking the blunt of the problems. So the manifestations are that he looks horrible, the body smell, and all these different things he's going through. He's scared. He's crying, and these are complete opposites of how he was before. He, you know, he was always you know, well-dressed, groomed, although he had long hair. He was very well-groomed. He took showers. So this is a difference in this guy. So Charlie asked him, what are you going to do? I mean, what are you going to do about this? And his response is, I can't stop her. I've opened the door, and there's nothing I can do. Of course, Crowley's thinking, he doesn't know what he's thinking. He's like, shit, I heard the voice. So he's He's trying to, to, to figure out what's really going on. Is this guy lying to him? He's not. Is it only happening in his mind? That's a big thing. You can become schizophrenic. You can uh, explain why people see things. They believe it's happening to them, but it's all psychological. It's not really happening. This is where Crowley's at. He doesn't know. So at the end of the day, Justin goes back in. Let me call back. 
So does Prowley, is he getting the feeling like an ominous feeling that's hanging, something's hanging in the air, like something's going to transpire? He seems kind of worried, kind of on edge. Yeah, absolutely. He knows something's wrong. He's just kind of explaining. He hasn't put two and two together well onto the last part of the story, which everything will come together for you. He knows something's wrong. He just doesn't know what it is. And that day on the yard, when Justin goes in, you know, that night, uh, he hears Justin crying like a small child. And, you know, he asks him, he, he knocks on his door, on his, on his wall, and he asks him, is everything okay? No answer. I mean, he doesn't want to let the whole world know something's going on. But this continues uh, for weeks. And he hears Justin pleading, please stop, please stop. I've done everything you've asked. Just let me go, please. He's pleading with whoever he's talking to. And there's moans of pain mixed with gas, gas of pleasure. And, you know, this guy's just like, he doesn't know what's going on, but he can't explain the temperature drop. He can't explain the smell. He can't explain the voice of a woman. And... Two weeks later, it's just around dinner time, and the officers coming by, the tear officers are passing out supplies. And he's just gotten in front of Crowley's house to hand him his newspapers, I mean, I'm sorry, his paper, his soap, and everything, and he has a block worker with him. And, you know, just as he passes his cell, he hears a thump, a very hard thump, and then a, a moan of pain, and then a gasp. And when the cop gets in front of Justin's cell, you hear him say, oh my God, and you hear the alarm. He hits his alarm system, and he, he, tell, he yells at the block word, go to the front, we, need, we have a man down come to the front, hurry up, and the blocker takes off running. Meanwhile, whistles are being blown, and of course, Crawley's thinking, Justin hung himself, or killed himself, or he's done something. Never would he have allowed, or himself even believe that somebody would do this. But then he remembers that just seconds before that, he hears Justin say, I won't let you in. I'll stop you this time. You won't have your way with me. It didn't make any sense until the cops arrive. They get these shields up because a lot of times guys fake. When they open the door, they attack the officers. The door swung open and the medical staff step in and they pull Justin Helzer out of his cell. They lay him down in front of Crowley's house, and what he sees shocks him. There lays Justin Helzer on the floor, on a gurney. He's whimpering, and from his eyes, there are two regular-sized big pens shoved all the way into his eyes, and his eyes are bleeding. So imagine that. 
a guy is sitting there and he has two sharp, long, normal pen, uh, pens, those big pens you buy in the store, and you shove both of them into his eye sockets. And he's laying there moaning and blood coming out of his eyes. Yeah, that's clearly a shocking, just horrifying scene. I'm picturing, I mean, if he's doing that himself, that's not actually an easy thing to accomplish unless you're extremely motivated. I could see stabbing one eye with a pin, but kind of picture holding them and doing two of them simultaneously because you're going to uh, recoil as part of a, a, a natural response to getting stabbed in the eye. So it almost seems kind of difficult to do, doesn't it? It's extreme. And, and, and you have to wonder, okay, what would motivate a guy to do this? He had to be in really desperate uh, frame of mind to even consider something like this. So, you know, the, they pick him up, they rush him to the hospital, and really, that's it. I mean, he disappears, he's gone for several weeks, and Crowley doesn't feel the temperature drop, there's no smell of sulfur, everything's gone. The chanting, of course, has gone away because Justin's gone. A few weeks later, they bring him back. And now he's completely blind. And he's no longer next door to Crowley. They put him at the end of the tier next to the shower so he can just enter the showers. And Crowley says that when he passes by in the wheelchair, there's kind of a look of content on his face, which you can't explain. They move his brother Glenn next to him to kind of help him. You know, they, they kind of used the buddy system because he's blind and they would allow his brother to help him with his, his personal needs. So some time passes and Crowley's moved to the American Disabilities Yard. As I mentioned, he's 80 years old. And lo and behold, a few weeks later, Justin is wheeled out there in a wheelchair. As soon as Crowley sees him, he comes to the gate and he helps him to the gates. And he asks him, how you doing? And, you know, Justin's very joyful. He's, I'm doing great. Everything's good. Um, he asks him to put him next to the, to the fence so he can listen to the birds. And Crowley's very curious. He wants to ask him a lot of, a lot of questions. And, you know, he tells him, why did you do this? And Justin's response is, everybody thinks I did it to attempt to kill myself. And to be honest, that never crossed my mind. The goal was to stop her from using my eyes and stop her from getting inside me and make me see terrible things. That's why I did it. And kind of in a triumphant voice, he tells Crowley, I stopped her. She can no longer use me. This is his frame of mind. This reason or the reasoning behind him taking his eyes out was to stop what he perceives and what he believes is a, well, a demon or an entity from entering him and making him see all these things and experience all these terrible things that she or it is making him experience. Which sounds kind of crazy, right? 
Yeah, and also kind of similar to his brothers uh, being kind of a, a medium, right? Yeah, I mean, sort of. Like, yeah, I mean, you think about it. Yeah, there's there's this thing going on in that family. You know, it's hard to decipher what happens. And I can tell you, I've interviewed over 100 guys here on the row. And there are similar stories going on from guy to guy. And it always leads to a convict inmate prisoner dying. It, 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 there's no halfway mark. With Justin, he, he poked his eyes out. And he's really blind. He's, he asked Polly to, to walk with him. And as they're walking, he holds his shoulder. It's, it's Crowley thinks he's acting at first, that he's not really blind. He tests him. But he soon realizes, yeah, he can't see. He's blind. He took his own eyes. So, you know, it, this goes on for a while. You know, Justin, when it's, when it's nice and sunny, he comes out. He laughs. He talks. Everything is normal. Then one day... He's not smiling again. He's very quiet, subdued. It's almost raining outside. He never comes on those type of days. And Carly says, hey, I didn't expect to see you today. And where do I park you? He doesn't say much. And finally, when he pushes him to stop and lock his brake, he tells him, she's come back. And he starts to cry silently again. I can't go on like this. I'm scared. I'm alone. I'm in the dark, and she does whatever she wants with me. Now, so Crowley's first reaction, I thought you stopped her, that this was it. And he tells Crowley, look, where she takes me is a place where there are other people there, too. And they also don't have eyes. I should have known better, but everybody thinks, I should have known better, but... Other people have tried to take their eyes out, and it doesn't stop her. She still does what she wants. I can't go on like this. This is his state of mind. This is how he is. And, you know, what's changed is Crowley's answer. What has changed? And his response is, she never really left. She's always been with me. And I, I can't do this anymore. So Crowley's kind of wondering, okay, what is this guy doing? What's he going to say? How is he going to respond to this situation? And he asks him, are you okay? And at this time, the guards are going to pull Justin back off the yard. And he kind of turns to him and says, I am now. I, I know what to do. So he leaves. And Crowley doesn't really know what to say. It's, it's kind of shocking that this kid has gone back to that state of mind. But a few weeks later, it's around 10 o'clock at night, suddenly the alarms go off. And Carly takes off his headphones and he sees a female guard running down the tier as fast as she can, yelling for help and for medical staff. He sticks his mirror out and he sees that in front of what looks like Justin's cell, there is a whole mirage of staff members and medical staff and they're trying to open the door that the door has been he, I guess he well I know he did he tied a sheet around the, the the door so you couldn't open it easily in case you saw him 
you couldn't get to him. You have 60 seconds remaining. So they're cutting the the door frame, the sheet is tied around it. They're cutting it. They finally open the door, and when the door swings open, there is Justin Helzer. He's hanging from his neck from the bars of his door, and they're attempting to cut him down. Let me call back. Yeah, so this is kind of confusing to me. I know people do mutilate themselves sometimes, but now he's hung himself. I would think when you're stabbing your eyes out, at that point, why not just kind of hang yourself at that point? You know what I mean? Yeah, you're absolutely correct. Um, It's just a very unfortunate situation. And yeah, you would think that mutilation and hanging is a natural course of things. In this instance, there's a, there's a reason he has a motivation and it's fear. He's afraid of something that's here. And as I mentioned, Crawley's looking through a small pocket mirror out his bars and he sees the door, the door swing open and there's Helzer hanging. Now, if you were wondering, okay, how do you hang yourself from the door? Well, he's six foot six. The top bar in the cell has, well, like bars. You wrap a rope around it, you wrap it around your neck and you just bend your knees it strangles you. It's not a, a nice way of going, but it will accomplish the goal if that's what you're trying to do. So Crowley's view is momentarily blocked. The staff members are, you know, medical staff members are trying to revive him, but then suddenly they're no longer rushing around, which tells them he's passed away, he's dead. So, um, you know, they, they put him on a gurney, and they walk him towards the front. I said, they're not rushing around, they're just walking towards the front. And he walks right by Crowley's house. Well, the guards brought him right by his cell and, and Crowley was standing at his bars. He looks at him and he sees that he looks asleep. He looks at peace. But by this time, Crowley knows. He's, he's not a dummy, he understands. And he's not fooled. He knows that San Quentin has claimed another victim. Um, and if what Justin says is true, something supernatural got him. And taking his eyes out, trying to escape, failed. Ultimately, the only way that he was going to escape this was by killing himself. So as I'm interviewing Crowley, he tells me, the way I look at it, that boy jumped from the frying pan, that boy jumped from the frying pan to the fire by killing himself. There's no peace in death. And what awaits him is just suffering. Nothing nice. So as I'm finishing the interview with Crowley, you know, we're talking. And he said, look, there's something right about this place. Something's wrong about it. I can feel it. I know it. So I ask him, hey, what do you mean? He says, you know, when I was a boy, my mom told me, not to go to my aunt's house. Of course, I didn't listen to her. I went off anyways. I ate dinner, I played games with my cousins. And when I started home, it started getting dark. So I took a shortcut through an old cemetery. About halfway through it, I noticed it was completely dark. And I started to hurry. When suddenly I felt something that was watching me. He said he stopped, he looked around but he couldn't see anything. So he ran home faster. 
the whole time he felt like something could have reached out and grabbed him. That's what San Quentin feels like. An old cemetery. Like at any moment, something can take you. So, so as the interview ends, I tell him, I really appreciate you taking the time and telling me about this. And I, then I just stopped and asked him, do you believe what Helser told you? I mean, is it possible it was all in his head? I closed my, my folders and I looked at him and I got the feeling Crawley wasn't telling me something. There was something in his eyes that was unmistakable fear. So I said, listen, what aren't you telling me? And he was silent for a few moments. He says, oh, hell, it's not like I'm going to make, it's not going to make a difference. I said, okay, go on. What, what did you see? He said, that night, Justin hung himself. I saw something I couldn't explain. Of course, I said, tell me. He says, look, when those cops took him away, I don't know why, but I put my mirror out again towards the back of the unit where Justin sells at. And what I saw made me nearly wet my pants. I said, what did you see? He said, standing in front of his cell was a, a woman with long, weighty, dark hair. She had a long, shapeless black gown. And next to her, on his knees, was Justin. He said, I, my heart started pounding. I fumbled the mirror, and I looked again. They were gone. So that's the story of Justin Helzer and how I got it from a convict on death row that was living next door and experienced the entire event as he saw it. So that's the story I got from Crowley for this book that I've written. And by the way, there are, there are nine stories in this book, equally as scary, and there's a history of San Quentin, how it's tied to the paranormal, including the shaman uh, canteen, and everything to do with the prison and all the paranormal events that have happened here. This is not a nice place to live. I personally have never seen ghosts or those things. I'm kind of immune to them, but I have experienced the coldness. I have experienced those feelings of dread. This place is bad mojo. This place is, you know, 165 plus years of torture, hate, fear, executions, death, not a nice place. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed the story, especially you, man. I've never told you this before, this story before, so I hope that you liked it as well. Yeah, it's definitely, it's bizarre. How long was it uh, between him stabbing his eyes out with, uh, with the pins and him hanging himself? It was a couple of months. It was a few months. And, you know, he came back. He was on the yard for a while. You know, he was doing what he normally did until suddenly he changed again. And he felt that that entity had come back to, you know, torture him, to haunt him, to do all these unspeakable things to him. So much so that he took his own life to um, get away from her. Or it. I kept wondering about his physical 
deterioration because I was under the impression that when he was on the outside, he was this strapping kind of attractive guy. And then I, I guess I missed something because all of a sudden you were describing him even before the eyeball incident as being kind of like this, this, um, disabled ghoul. So <laughs> what, what happened there? Well, 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 let's not confuse the two guys. There's two brothers here. Glenn and Justin are two different guys, of course, and they're all, they're both very tall guys. Justin is the younger brother and he was experiencing some medical conditions which were dealing with his back. You know, his back was he wasn't a ghoul. He wasn't, you know, crawling on his knees in a wheelchair before all this stuff happened. But he was experiencing extreme pain that he was asking the medical staff here to try and help him with, and they wouldn't help him. It's the reason he started studying these books on magic and healing and meditation and fasting. But the one that you're thinking about is his brother Glenn. He's the younger guy that dated a Playboy uh, playmate. You know, he was the charismatic one. This guy was mostly his his, his follower, his um, his gopher. I don't think that you talked to Glenn, but did you get any word as to his reaction or did anything come out? Did he ever say anything about it or address this in any way? Yeah, he confirmed everything that Crowley said. Um, his brother had relayed the same things to him as well, uh, what was going on with him. Um, I, Like I said, I did speak to Glenn. I, I spoke to both these guys a great uh, deal while they were here, they're both gone off. Obviously, Justin's dead and Glenn is now in a different prison. But um, I had a chance to speak to both, and that's why I can give you an opinion about who they are, what they are, how they acted, because I was here with them. I observed them. I spoke to them on many occasions, and I got my impressions of who they were and what their deal was far before anybody else could, because that's what I do. I watch people, and... Uh, both Glenn and Justin were people that I had spoken to on a number of occasions. Uh, Glenn at one time was on my yard for a while. And how did this affect him, do you think? You know, it's really funny because the impression that I got from him, and it was kind of like nonchalant. If my brother... I don't have a brother, but I have sisters. If they had taken their lives because this was happening to them, I would have been very distraught. I would have been very upset. Uh, it would have affected me in a very emotional way. He didn't respond that way. His response was, well, he's in a better place now. That's a cliche that I hate. It just made me feel more like He's more interested in himself than anybody else. That's just the impression I got. And that's how I feel about it. I mean, I'm a pretty detective character when it comes to cats like this. As I said, he was a snakeskin oil salesman, a hustler. A low-grade one, but a hustler. And most hustlers are narcissistic, they're egotistical, they're self-centered. And all those attributes aside from the whole cult leader thing, fit him perfectly. Well, I guess that's 
the story of Justin Helzer and his brother to a lesser degree. Uh, it's really strange. I, I mean, have you ever heard of another incident of someone stabbing their eyeballs out? I've, I've heard of uh, people cutting off certain body parts and things, but that's a new one to me. I'm not, a, not an expert. Not in that sense. No, I've never heard of anybody doing that. That's a pretty gruesome way to get something done. To stick. I mean, look, if you have a chance, go to a store, buy a big pen and look at it. It's not the... That hurt. It's going to hurt no matter how you look at it. But I've never heard anything like that. Yeah, no matter how you look at it, it's extreme. Sticking big pens in your eyes to blind yourself is pretty extreme. So I've never seen that before or even heard of it before. But, you know, you put a guy in that kind of situation where fear is motivating you, you'd be surprised what a person can do and will do. Um, maybe he felt he was protecting himself and that's the only way he can accomplish it. But, look, the, the book uh, hopefully will come out soon. It has <laughs> a very extreme story like that one in it. That one's a good one, but there are eight other stories in the book, plus the entire history of acts like that, of people doing great feats of violence and murder uh, when they're being influenced by something. So I hope to have it out soon. And um, yeah, that's the story of Windows to the Soul and the story of Justin Helzer. Yeah, it's a crazy story. Thanks for sharing it. And we're going to be back next week with a, a story of a killer who... I really want to get your analysis on um, because it's just really atypical. Until next time, I've been Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nogueira. Be aware of your surroundings. Your life can depend on it. Have a good day.